Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to the Business of Craft Beer podcast, recorded live from the University of Vermont's Continuing and Distance Education Department with your host, Greg Dunkley. Whether you're looking to break into the craft beer industry or start your own brewery, this podcast is for you. Each week, we will discuss all aspects of the craft beer industry from sales, operations, marketing, trends, and analysis with industry experts and thought leaders. If you'd like to be part of the show, please call 929 477 one seven five seven, and now here's your host, Greg Dunkley. Well, good afternoon. Uh, this is Gregory Dunkling. Uh, we're coming to you live from Burlington, Vermont. Uh, if you've dreamed about opening your own brewery or looking for a career change into craft, our online certificate program offers industry-specific knowledge to make this possible. Our instructors are craft beer experts from across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, The University of Vermont's Business of Craft Beer program was developed for those who specifically want to learn about the business side of this exciting industry. And for further details, give us a call at 800-639-3210 or visit our Facebook page at Facebook UVM Business of Craft Beer. For today's show, we are focusing on an exciting side of the industry, nanobreweries. Uh, our guests are Dan Yukalowitz of Simple Roots Brewing Com- Company here in Burlington, uh, Vermont, and Jamie Robinson from Boxcar Brewing Company located in Chester, Westchester, Pennsylvania. Uh, Blind Bat Brewery from Long Island will join us in a couple of weeks uh, And I'd like to uh, frame the discussion a little bit here before we get started. Uh, While there is no definitive answer as to what constitutes a nanobrewery, the most widely accepted description is a brewery that produces in batches of three barrels or smaller. While total uh, annual production does not necessarily define a brewery as a nano, it may be an indicator. Uh, Based on 2014 data, nearly 1,000 breweries had production under 250 barrels per year and another 500 between 250 and 500 barrels. Importantly, two years ago, breweries of this size, based on production level, represented 45% of all breweries, all craft breweries, that is. Of course, there are many well-known breweries such as Dogfish Head and Pike that started small and grew into national brands. So the path for some may be to start small and grow, while others may be content with starting small and remaining a strong local brand in their state with no specific aspirations of becoming a regional or national brewery. So I'd like to introduce our guest, Dan Yukalowitz of Simple Roots Brewing Company. Welcome, Dan. Hi, Greg. How's it going? Thanks for having us on. Good. Um, I just learned a minute ago that Dan literally just climbed out of cleaning the bright tank uh, at his brewery. So such is life as being a a, a head brewer and brewery owner. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so let's let's start uh, by hearing from you about Simple Roots Brewing. Um, What is your personal background? When did you start? And... uh, and a little background on uh, Simple Roots uh, here in Vermont. Sure. Uh, I started home brewing in the 90s, late 90s. I loved beer, and I loved home brewing, and it was kind of on and off for some years, and then 2010 I got a little bit more serious, and friends started asking for uh, for uh, bachelor parties and such, and um, then I, as a teacher, I went back to school for it because I thought it was kind of important, so I went to the American Brewers Guild in um, Middlebury, Vermont, uh, which was an online program, and then uh, week uh, 
um, there. And then I did six weeks at uh, American Flatbread Zero Gravity downtown Burlington uh, as my apprenticeship <clears throat> in uh, 2013, summer of 2013, and started paperwork that fall. And we opened May 2014. Um, got a special request from the city and from the federal government to open it in our detached garage. <laughs> and that, that's, that's, that's pretty well, that's the, the long and short of it. Um, and now we just opened a brand new space in a much larger facility, um, comparatively. And now we have a tap room in the new north end of Burlington. I had uh, the opportunity to visit uh, the new tap room this past weekend. Uh, wonderful yeah. location. Yeah, and of you. course, uh, wonderful products. If you haven't tried them, I encourage you to do so. Um, so, Dan, do you uh, self-distribute? your beer, and if so, in, in what format? Bottles, cans, uh, kegs? Give us a little uh, picture of, of, of how you get beer to market other than your new tap room. Uh, absolutely. Karen and I knew right away self-distribution was where it had to be for us uh, because that is a 30% uh, margin uh, uh, to hire a distributor uh, for that. So self-distribution in the state of Vermont, you just have to open a new business, a distribution business, and we distribute 22-ounce uh, bottles, and we also distribute, although much smaller, 7.75 um, uh, or quarter-gallon kegs, a uh, quarter-barrel kegs, excuse me, um, to some uh, restaurants and bars, more as kind of advertisement um, that were out there, um, because we we really went backwards. We didn't have a tap room. We had didn't have a tap room for over two years, and so we really had to push our bottles and kegs uh, really hard and get people out there tasting. We went to farmers markets and stores and got people tasting it and getting our bottles out there. Um, we would, of course, love to go to cans, and people ask us that all the time. We love cans. They're easy to go to the beach. I don't. They're not better quality, uh, in the, but they are just as good. And um, they're great. It's just ridiculously expensive to get to go on that route. And mobile canners don't do nano breweries. They're we're much too small for, for mobile canning. So that's kind of the big spiel on the cans <laughs> that we get asked yeah. a lot. <clears throat> so um, the economics uh, of, of self-distribution were quite evident, I guess, the 30% uh, that you retain. Um, but uh, that said, there are a number of hidden or maybe not so hidden costs of uh, doing your own self-distribution, uh, time, vehicles, staff, uh, establishing accounts. Um, uh, what is the geographic market that you serve, and could you talk a little bit about what these costs look like uh, running your own separate distribution company? Yeah, sure, and, and that's definitely a cost-benefit analysis you need to run <clears throat> because there is going to be a come-up point, I think, very soon for us where self-distributing is going to hurt us because I can't drive everywhere in the state of Vermont. I can't keep up on accounts. I can't do the sales work that I've been doing. Um, but basically, I started by calling stores. And we started at six stores, and we're now in like 35 or 40 stores um, throughout Vermont. We're as south as Middlebury, uh, Barrie, Montpelier, and then Fairfax. So that's our kind of – and the islands. So that's kind of our borders. It's about a 50-mile, I think, radius, 40 miles, something like that. Uh, we're up in Stowe and Waterbury, too. And um, it was enough where I finally got those accounts, and I send out an email on Mondays and with what we have, and people email me back, and we do all the invoicing. And then I take a pretty much a whole day. takes me quite a while. Um, depends on the day, but five to eight hours on a Wednesday or Thursday, and I drive all over the state delivering bottles and kegs uh, to our accounts. And, you know, I think that we're going to soon find that I'm not going to be able to do that because I need to be in the brewery brewing or moving beer or whatever i got to do. Um, uh, you know, a brewer friend of mine once said, 500 barrels. He said, once you reach 500 barrels, I don't know what that means. He said, <laughs> once you reach 500 barrels a year, then you can go with the distributor. And so I've always kind of shot for that. I have no idea why. I think we'll get there quicker, though. Are you in discussions? Uh, are you in discussions with uh, some of the brewer, uh, distributors here in Vermont to begin um, that process? Only, only informal. Uh, about a year ago, and it's on my list. Um, I, it's on my list to go there because obviously you can um, brew a lot more and 
and get it get it out and and not dealing with all of those extra things that I have to deal with on top of the brewery um, would be nice. I understand kind of what that 30% is for, <laughs> having yeah. done it myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd like to uh, bring into our uh, discussion uh, Jamie Robinson from Boxcar Brewing Company, located in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Uh, welcome, Jamie. Hey, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about Boxcar Brewing, uh, your your personal background, and, and what enticed you to start a brewery. Uh, sure. Well, uh, we started uh, about 2010 is when we actually first sold our first beer, but, uh, you know, had getting, getting, going through the process before then, um, paperwork, finding a place to lease, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then of course, building the brewery, we, uh, sort of built the brewery ourselves, uh, repurposed, um, dairy equipment and other such things to sort of make it work and then kind of upgrade along the way. Um, my background originally, uh, I basically had worked some facet of construction all through, high school and college. Um, so just a little bit of everything. And, um, along the way, you know, just kind of picked up a number of things. So that was really useful when we were building our brewery, you know, a little bit of plumbing, a little bit of electric electricity and, you know, so on. So, uh, you know, it it all comes in useful. Um, but basically how we got started, uh, my former partner who's no longer with us, um, he had a wedding down in Tennessee and we had gone down for the wedding and he had, uh, home brewed a lot of the beers for the wedding and you know we sat around drinking and you know like any good irish wedding goes you know at the end of it you so you say why are we buying this stuff you make it, you know? <laughs> so uh after a couple of pops that's what we decided we were going to uh pursue so about a year later he contacted me and was moving back to pennsylvania and we started home brewing for a number of years and then uh sort of got together a little bit of investment through family and friends and, and sort of built the brewery our own. Well, great. Um, uh, we're talking with two owner operators from nano breweries, uh, one in, in Pennsylvania and one here in Vermont. Uh, if you would like to join the conversation, the phone lines are open. Call us at 929-477-1757. That's 929-477-1757. Make sure to press number one on your phone keypad to enter the queue and I'll bring you in. Um, So we're hearing more uh, brewery staff uh, describe their focus as hyper local in terms of marketing and distribution. And I think Dan, you kind of described that as being, you know, 40, 50 mile uh, radius from your brewery is the market that you're focusing on. so I'd like you both to talk a little bit more about that. What lessons uh, would you offer breweries in planning about how to think about distribution in their geographic market? Dan, go ahead first. Uh, yeah, I mean, I almost feel like it's just kind of out of necessity at the beginning. You, you know, you, you can't drive that far. <laughs> and if you do drive, if I drive all the way down south to Brattleboro, who's ever going to drink my beer? I mean, they don't know me. They don't there's no tasting of it. I mean, unless I went down there, I mean, so I think it's just kind of out of necessity. I don't know if it's necessarily a choice. Like we want to be super local. <laughs> I mean, we do, but, but we kind of have to at that point since it's just me basically. And my wife, um, yeah. <laughs> That's my, do, I do you, my answer. <laughs> did you go about the process of targeting? You said you have 35 to 40 stores. Did you develop sort of a, uh, a, a list of those places that you wanted to be uh, in retail and go after them specifically, or how did you approach that? Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, they had to be beer stores. They had to be places where they were known that people would go to buy craft beer, Vermont craft beer and local craft beer. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, our co-ops here are big. Uh, you know, um, there's a lot of specific beer stores that specifically you know, especially they push Vermont beers. It's definitely being at every single gas station doesn't make sense because people who sometimes shop at, you know, that gas station are just going there to buy gas or ice, yeah. not going there to buy beer. So, yeah. Yeah, you, you know, we were extremely specific about who we called. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Jamie, tell us uh, your, your uh, approach to uh, distribution. I understand from our conversation earlier that you – 
actually have uh, were out in the market before the tap room, and now you've changed your focus some. Yeah. So when we first began, um, you know, we were basically, you know, production facility only. Uh, and this was prior to them changing the laws in Pennsylvania. Just recently, they had changed the laws that now any brewery can have a tap room and doesn't necessarily have to supply, you know, have a brew pub license, as it were, in the past. Um, so that kind of came on, you know, after we opened the brew pub. So we had to go through the, you know, entire process of, of getting the pub license, the you know, health department and everything else that comes with it. Um, but, you know, prior to that, we were doing uh, dis- distribution. We started with self-distribution. Um, and again, you know, it, it is a necessity thing and it is a proximity thing. And you're going to you're going to help drive, you know, people you know, to, to know who you are and what your place is. Um, so, you know, just being able to be local, it, it is important. Um, you know, people seem to get behind that. There's a lot of good causes you know, you can get behind in the local neighborhood. We've, you know, donated to tons of different, you know, fundraisers or, you know, what have you just, um, you know, goodwill out there. You know, you're helping people out. You're getting the name out there. It, it, it sort of helps out. Um, but after doing self-distribution for a bit, we did go with the distributor. And when we first signed on, um, sort of early in the game, it was a, a Budweiser house. Uh, they had a few craft brews in their portfolio but not a lot um and i sort of watched over the course of the last five years or so them just sort of bring more and more on it seemed like every month they're launching you know two or three new micros and and you just kind of get buried and lost in the shuffle and and you know the the product that you're getting to the consumer suffers as well because it's sitting around on shelves for a lot longer than you'd like it to and um you really just don't have your finger on the pulse of where of the, the product you're getting to people's into people's hands. So, you know, making that s- switch back to self-distribution um, along with, of course, the brew pub really gives you, you know, that, that one-on, one-on-one experience with your consumer, um, getting honest feedback, being able, you know, to hear what they say and, and you know, use that information. Great. Um, you both have touched, I think, on the topic of branding. Um, what advice? Uh, well, let, let me let me ask you, how, how did you create your brand and describe for us your process? Everything from the the imagery that you use, as well as the message uh, in the market uh, about your brewery and what you stand for. Uh, Jamie, why don't you start with us first? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, obviously, we're a boxcar brewing company. Um, so we basically the name came about uh my wife uh has you know comes from a family you know her her father all her uncles her grandfather uh long line of uh, irish rail workers so we wanted to do something that was kind of a little throwback to that and you know i think trains are you know very americana if you will that there's a lot to it um so we wanted to do something that sort of uh you know people are familiar with without even you know, not seeing before, you know, I've had a number of people believe that they've had our product before just because the name sort of sounds familiar to them, you know, you know, how could I have not had that, you know? Uh, but you know, that's something that we wanted to do. So we want, we wanted to stick with something pretty simple, straightforward. We thought there was a lot that, that you could do with the trains. Um, we actually use, uh, a symbolism called hobo glyphs in a lot of our, uh, branding and art. And, and basically what they are, a series of, sketchings that um, migrant workers would use to communicate with each other when they were traveling town to town. Um, you know, you'd only have a, maybe a 10 second window to decide whether you wanted to jump off a train in a certain place and seeing these, cert- these symbols around, uh, you know, maybe charcoaled on a bridge underpass hmm. or, you know, sketched on something would, uh, would let people know, Hey, this is a good place to jump off. I might be able to find some food for work or, things of that nature. So there was a lot we could do with the imagery and uh, want to do something simple and, and straightforward and, and, you know, sort of for the people. That's great. Great story. Uh, Dan, how about Simple Roots Brewing Company? Uh, yeah, that was a great story. Jamie, I'm just looking at your website right now. I see what these things are. They're pretty cool looking. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. yeah uh, so Simple Roots, it was a long process getting that name. And, uh, you know, we every name in the book, you can imagine friends and family, whatever. And Karen and I were just away. We were at Squam Lake in New Hampshire with some friends. And I was just sitting there, and she was in the other room, and I just said, oh, I just want it to be normal and simple and humble and down-to-earth. 
And then, like, it's, but it's about our family and our friends and our roots. And she just yells in their room, why don't we just call it Simple Roots? And I'm like, oh, that's perfect. <laughs> so it was really just out of frustration that we finally came to this perfect name we felt, that it's about our simplicity of true-to-beer style and about our family and friends and enjoying people's company. Um, and then we, we, because of that, we kind of came up with our logo as a, as a kind of family shield, if you will. It's a circle that contains a mash paddle for hard work and um, barley for good ingredients, water for Lake Champlain where we are, and, of course, brewing water, and a hand for community and our family. And in the middle of the, of the thing is the house, our house, uh, with a big S in it. Uh-huh. Uh, and I will say, <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Finish. Uh, I will say we did get that professionally done. Uh, we uh-huh. did hire a graphic designer, and it was one of the best decisions I ever made in this business. <laughs> um, I we had friends doing it. I was doing it, and it was just not nothing stuck out. And then when we spent time with this graphic designer, and we spent a couple weeks, wow! I, I've been very impressed with what we have, and it feels like us. And it, it's been really amazing yeah sometimes knowing where your strengths are and where to uh reach out for talent uh in different areas uh, comes in quite handy doesn't it <laughs> yeah it does yeah so i i have a we have a caller uh five nine eight nine six two nine uh go ahead uh, announce your name where you're from and your question Hi, my name is Sarah, and thank you guys so much for um, explaining the stories kind of behind each of your breweries. And I just had a quick question for you. Um, so what advice would you offer people that are launching a new brewery, you know, in regards to the importance of branding? Uh, if you don't mind, this is Dan, if you don't mind, I would just repeat. Yeah. To me, hiring that graphic designer, that was very important to us. I I can't believe how much our logo has been on everything we do everyone sees it they recognize it with our brand and then of course having of course quality beer and good beer is is great but having that powerful symbol that people relate us to that just like Budweiser just like anyone out Google just like anyone out there having Mm -hmm. that I couldn't believe I was in disbelief actually because I was like we don't need that I can just draw a barley grain it's fine no big deal and Kara was not happy with that, and I'm glad she pushed me in this direction. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think to, uh, to, to you know, piggyback on top of that, branding is certainly a very, uh, you know, important and big thing. Um, you know, you, you know, doing something that people can immediately recognize. Uh, luckily for me, I'm married to a woman who owns a marketing and advertising agency and spent the last 20 years doing graphic design, so... <laughs> We kind of had that one in our back pocket to start. Um, but, yeah, branding is a very, you know, important thing. Um, you know, and if you're talking about people, uh, you know, already on the process of launching, um, I would say, you know, expect the unexpected, you know. Try to, uh, you know, cushion yourself. Give yourself a little bit of extra funding for, for the, um, you know, the, the, un, for the unseen things that are going to, you know, turn up along the way. Um, I think that's important for those not looking or not yet started in the industry and looking to make, maybe get in. I would say the big thing is, is if you're at all able to go volunteer somewhere, um, you know, get in a brewery, uh, you know, get your hands dirty, you know, drag some hoses around, muck out some tanks and sit and, you know, look at yourself at the end of the day and say, do I want to do this? You know, <laughs> I think it's really important um, that people, have a realistic expectation of what it's like to be in the industry, not the, you know, standing around sipping on, you know, the beers at the end of the day sort of thing. There's a lot that goes into it before you get to that stage. Great. Uh, thank, thank you for those, uh, that response and that call. Um, thank you. Uh, we're talking, talking with Dan in of Simple Roots Brewing Company uh, in Burlington, Vermont, and Jamie Robinson from Boxcar Brewing Company located in Pennsylvania. Um, if you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a call at 929-477-1757. Let's take a, a little time to explore on-premise beer sales. Uh, the, the trend nationally appears to be that small breweries offer are offering tap rooms uh, for the sale of beer directly to consumers. Um, while the economics of this are are obvious, um, describe the benefits and challenges of running your own 
tap rooms, uh, specifically what are the benefits of taking on this effort and what are the costs and challenges? Dan, you wanna you wanna go ahead with that? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm quite we're quite novice at this since we just opened our tap room July 21st. Um, but I will say, and this I think just reiterates what Jamie said, that getting to know people who are drinking your beer and hanging out with them and having conversations with them is great. You can tailor your beers to them. You can you can tell your story. You know, you can create regulars that come back and talk about you. And you have a relationship with people that you uh, – I'm a school teacher by trade, and this is very similar where it's about building relationships. So having a tap room and relationships I think is really big. Um, I think that's a huge benefit. Um, I think a huge challenge is it's just one more thing you just added to your plate of now on, you know, after a long brew day, I've got to go help my wife in the tap room at 5 o'clock and start washing dishes and, and talk with people and be friendly and stuff. Um, I think that'll change. I think once I pull away from that a little bit more when we start hiring more people, but um, yeah, having you know something else on your plate, I think is difficult. But God, it's not even. It's so worth. I mean, it's so beyond worth that I wouldn't even think about not having a tap room at this point. Of course, we wanted it for so long, but yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> How about you, Jamie? Yeah, I would definitely agree i mean having that one-on-one uh interaction with your customer is just you know it's amazing there's very few industries where you you really get to have that you know a lot of times it's you know you you manufacture something you send it off and it trickles through five hands before it gets to the end user and you know uh, what state is it in at that point or you know what their is their reaction you know you have to kind of get it get it second hand from someone else um so having that one-on-one is just you know, it, it, it's invaluable. I mean, you, you can't really can't really put a measure on that. And and furthermore, the, as far as the challenges go, I think um, you know, staffing is a big thing. Uh, now with us, we have a full-on brew pub um, restaurant. So you know, I went from me and another guy running a, a brewery in an industrial park to you know a staff of 20 plus people that you're now you know managing and and you know. The, their issues become your issues and so on and so forth. So there's a lot to it. And, uh, you know, not having a restaurant management background, there was a lot to learn in, in a very short amount of time. Um, you know, so it's another whole animal you're taking on. And, uh, you know, it, it can be a little tough, uh, you know, to, to, to sort of put in a long day uh, sweating at the brewery and then heading on over and, and just putting on that happy face and saying, all right, you know, let who's next and, uh, and keeping that attitude. Um, but it is really, uh, it is really, really worth it. And, uh, you know, we, we, it's made a big, it's made an enormous difference, um, in, in our, uh, in our business over the course of the last year and a half. I wanted to just, uh, uh, anyone who has joined the show, uh, if you have a question, please press one on your phone keypad, to enter the queue and I'll, I'll be glad to bring you in. Uh, feel free to ask questions. Um, I'm going to take uh, just a moment to uh, uh, talk about our sponsor, uh, the University of Vermont's Business of Craft Beer program. If you've dreamed about opening your own brewery or looking for a career change into the craft beer industry, our online certificate program offers uh, specific knowledge to make this possible. Our instructors are craft beer experts from across the U.S. and Canada. And the University of Vermont's Business of Craft Beer program was developed for those who specifically want to learn about the business side of this exciting industry. Uh, you may give us a call at 800-639-3210 or visit, visit our Facebook page at Facebook, UVM Business of Craft Beer. Um, I'd like your perspective on uh, following the trend of what consumers want versus differentiating your brewery from others in terms of the products that you offer. Um, Of course, the trend approach is intended to pay attention to what is selling in the market and offering a portfolio that, that matches that demand. Uh, And the niche approach of course is, uh, is maybe counter to that somewhat. Um, You can think of Allagash in the early days and there, there are a lot of breweries today that are, just sort of ignoring those trends and going in a specific direct direction in terms of the products that they offer. Talk about this trend 
versus a niche approach and if a brewery can balance the two approaches. Dan? Uh, yeah, this is Dan. Uh, yeah, our our basic um, guidelines were that we were going to make a bunch of true-to-style beers, so we weren't really out of the box or too experimental. Um, we make some saisons, we make pale ales, we make a goza. We make beer, a Kolsch right now especially. We make some beers true-to-style. We're low-alcohol, um, low-ABV, sessionable beers um, that are just simple and easy to drink. Um, we felt that we we kind of almost we're not a brew pub, but we kind of went that brew pub route where you go into a brew pub and there's ten beers on tap, and we we really wanted to offer a bunch of different beers um, and get people really tasting different beers and styles and talking about them. Um, it's a slightly difficult for us here road in Vermont when everyone wants us to make a, a double IPA um, and we have not made one yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think there's a good, there's a great number of them here, and they're all really good. I don't think we need to make one, so I think, I think our simplicity, I think people are okay with that, and you know they come back and, and enjoy our beer. Yeah. What's your approach, Jamie, to this uh, this issue? Well, actually, uh, very very similar. In, in when we got started, uh, you know, we really wanted to, our, you know, our original approach was to make a beer that was. Uh, very sessionable, very drinkable, um, sort of, you know, uh, an alternative to some of the macro brews, um, you know, it, it being still light, um, easy to drink, and really something that we could sit down and drink with the family, you know. Uh, you know, I would say the majority of my family were probably, you know, like Miller Lite drinkers or something like that, you know, back then. So we wanted to come up with something that was uh, sort of approachable and, and, you know, what we kind of called like a transitional type beer where it would kind of get people a, a foot into the craft industry, but without hitting them over the head with hops, you know? So that was uh, sort of our, our start. Um, but the other side of that is, uh, you know, I think a lot of breweries uh, eventually do kind of come up with their, you know, sort of signature beer, you know, the one that for whatever reason um, sort of grabs hold of people, whether it's unique, whether you know, whether the branding's there or whether it's just really good, you know, um, and sort of for us, we had that happen a few years back, um, when we were brewing an IPA, um, one of the first batches that we were doing in a new tanks that we brought in and, uh, came in the next morning to find that the IPA was fermenting much hotter than we anticipated. And, uh, the reason being is that somehow we had plumbed the uh, the uh, wrong tanks in. So we had one tank being cooled with no beer in it and the other tank just ripping away. So sort of a moment <laughs> of panic there uh, as the beer was creeping up, uh, you know, into the high 70s. And we said, oh, man, what, what are we going to do? So sort of freaking out a little bit, figuring out what to do, what to do. We said, oh, well, why don't we, you know, why don't we add some uh, some tropical fruit or something, something like that to sort of cut it if it's, you know, got some of the higher alcohols or, you know, something to sort of soften soften the burn, if you will. And, uh, you know, I kept saying something like mango, but not necessarily mango, but maybe something like mango. And finally, my partner at the time said, so you want to put mango in the beer? And I said, yeah, I guess I do. <laughs> you know, I must have said it four times, so I guess I do. So uh, we ran off to the local uh, uh, Mexican bodegas to find some Alfonso mango puree and uh, dumped it into the tank and, uh, you know, let it go. And it continued to ferment for much longer than we uh, expected. And every morning we'd come in to, to squeegee, uh, you know, mango yeast slurry all off the floor into the drain and kept saying, well, I hope this beer doesn't suck because it's really a mess. Um, eventually finished out, crashed it out pulled some out and said, wow, this is really good. So that's kind of the birth of our mango ginger. And it's sort of, uh, you know, it, it went really gangbusters for us and it was our best seller for a very long time. So I think, um, you know, sometimes those things happen and sometimes you, you, you know, you don't know exactly what the public's going to gravitate towards, but, uh, you know, you can do your best guess, but I mean, sometimes something just strikes a chord with people. So, you know, it, it can go either way, but it wasn't our original approach. I'll tell you that. 
I would love to do a show or two on uh, semi-mistakes uh, that have become renowned uh, in terms of the pro- products that breweries offer, and there are many others. Sure. <laughs> yeah, your post-it note of beers or what what have you. you yeah. <laughs> so how were you able to replicate uh, easy, easy, easily uh, that, that, that semi-mistake? Yeah, we actually were, um, and what we uh... – what we did after a couple batches of it, we actually did lower the ABV and made it a little bit more sessionable um, just because we had, you know, this seven plus percent beer that people were just shooting down and they, they and we could see that it was uh, a little dangerous. So we wanted to make it a little bit more uh, friendly to, to everyone. Uh, we definitely had a lot of women that really enjoyed that beer and at seven and a half percent, you know, uh, it, could, it can get you there pretty quick. So we sort of lowered it and made it a, a more sessionable, you know, pale ale version of it. And maybe about once a year or, or every year and a half, we'll do a stronger version of it again and bring it back out. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Could you, uh, uh, both of you, talk a little bit about uh, seasonal beers? Uh, it, it is, you know, one of the categories of products that uh, consumers seem to gravitate towards. They're looking for that next uh, seasonal uh, option uh, after a, a summer of maybe lighter beers or wheat beers. Um, how do you approach uh, seasonal products? Uh, Dan, you want to start on that? Sure. Yeah, this is Dan. Uh, we we do mostly seasonal products. We have like four or five beers we do year round, but we, Karen and I, especially drink seasonally, and um, we drink a lot of Kolsch and Cream Ale now, and come fall we're going to drink a lot of our english bitter and a lot of bitters we like and then of course stouts in the winter and the spring you've got gozes coming back and 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 other things like that so we definitely do a lot of seasonals we're we're able to because we're so small and we can just kind of do whatever we want and if we want to put it on bottles we just have to um come up with labels for our, our, our labels are very simple so we just come up with labels for our uh, label maker to make and uh and now that we have the tap room, I've been actually making a ton of new beers because I can and I can just serve them here, which is very nice um, because we don't need labels for them. So I've been experimenting a lot and doing a lot of different things. Um, so, yeah, I think seasonals are important, and I think that's the way a lot of people drink beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would uh, definitely agree, you know, and, and it's something that keeps people coming back to your tap room or your pub, uh, you know, they, they kind of look for that year year in and year out. They're like, oh, you know, here comes that, uh, you know, that Oktoberfest they do um, again, and, and, and they look forward to it. So uh, I think it's, you know, it's really important, and uh, and it's fun, really. You know, it's something that kind of gives you a little bit of creative freedom instead of saying, oh, i got to make that pale ale again. Huh? Here comes that pale, you know, <laughs> over and over again. Um, so we sort of have the same approach to Dan in the sense that, we keep about uh, five beers on year round um, and the rest of them really do come around seasonally. Uh, I wouldn't say that we have hard dates on any of them, uh, but, you know, we sort of rotate them, you know, through the, you know, rotate through, through, through the different styles, uh, you know, stouts. And right now we've got a coffee porter that we brewed with a local uh, cold brewed coffee uh, company. Um, you know, we're, uh, obviously getting ready to launch the pumpkin and our, what we call our Boxtoberfest. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, it really does keep people coming back and, and it's something that I enjoy too. You know, I look forward to every year, you know, having that first, uh, beer of the, of the season. Uh, sometimes, uh, we learn the most from our mistakes. Uh, Dan, uh, being a teacher, you understand that. <laughs> Um, what's, what's, uh, if you're willing to, to divulge, what's one of your number one mistakes that you've made along the way? Boy, you mean in, in just general in the business or whatever? In, yeah. In the business, uh, anything related to your brewery? It seems like I, I, it seems like I do make quite a bit of mistakes and <laughs> I do learn from them. Uh, uh, yeah, it's too bad Kara's not here to answer that. Um, she'd be willing to say a lot more. Uh, luckily, I've yet to make a, a mistake, knock on wood, uh, on our beer and our quality, which has been nice. I mean, so I haven't had to get rid of anything yet. I'm sure that day will come soon. Uh-huh. Um, 
but I mean, I make mistakes with with equipment and things like that all the time. Open a valve when I shouldn't, and you know, situations where I'm like, wow, that that could have ended badly. And I've I've been a lot safer and a lot better. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't think of many specifics off the top of my head. Yeah, not well, that I don't want to admit anything. It's just I feel like every day I'm hurting that's myself fine. some way. <laughs> so, so in conversation I had with Jamie the other day. Uh, You've you've uh, been uh, you've taken different directions. You started out, uh, uh, as I understand, uh, self-distributing your beer, and then and then moving to a distributor, and then pulling back from that and focusing on a tap room and now brew pub uh, environment. So that seems to to be an interesting path. Um, uh, could you talk at all about you know did you view that as a sort of a logical transition from one stage to another or learning you know realistically learning from what the market was telling you or what your experiences were telling you um yeah i mean i i would say you know getting back to the original question as far as mistakes made along the way i mean you probably could just throw a dart and and i probably hit hit it so uh <laughs> you know we you know when you've been doing it for you know, originally starting, you know, 08, um, you know, started 08 with, uh, you know, un- underfunded. We, you know, we definitely could have used a little bit more uh, fundraising time um, to sort of get what we needed to be. Um, you know, one of the major mistakes that we had, and I don't, I don't necessarily say it was a mistake, more or less a difference in opinion from my former partner and I, but, you know, he wanted to stick with the unfiltered product, but with us making our, you know, our original ale, um, to for the masses and trying to get it, you know, into try to convert some of the Miller Lite drinkers of the world and stuff like that. I think uh, serving them um, something with, uh, you know, uh, an eighth inch of uh, yeast in the bottom of the bottle kind of turned a lot of them off. You know, I think half of them didn't realize yeast was used to make beer at times. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, you sort of, uh, you, you kind of just, go through the process and uh you know you learn along the way and i mean there's been countless things so we went from unfiltered bottle conditioned to filtered uh forced carbed and now we're doing a lot of unfiltered forced carbed um so you sort of go through a, a number of different things until you kind of find what really works for you uh but yeah i mean you know you name it we, we we've done it um it's just, it's all, it's all, it's all in the spirit of learning though. And, uh, certainly you, you know, you learn what not to do next time. Um, so yeah, I think it's, uh, I, I can say I've probably learned much more than what I've screwed up on than what I've gotten right. <laughs> um, all summer, uh, we've been exploring uh, the topic of the rapid growth of the craft beer industry and discussing whether this is sustainable or is it, does it represent a bubble? Um, I believe that Bart Watson from the Brewers Association has done a, a great job of dispelling uh, the notion of a bubble. But what are, what are your thoughts? Um, Ibis World uh, projects a forward-looking growth of 4% per year, um, obviously down from the heady 15% or over the past five years. Uh, yet, is that a bad thing, or uh, have we simply entered a maturing of this industry and four to five percent growth every year is what we should come to expect? Um, I'm even, you know, more interested uh, at, a, at a sort of micro level uh, in how this market growth impacts your breweries. Uh, is gaining visibility on tap handles and retail shelves becoming harder? Is even gaining access to market more of a challenge? Uh, Dan, you want to start with that? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I'm not sure about, you know, percentages and numbers. I, you know, I do know whatever the InBev Miller Coors is something like 75% of the entire market. So it seems like there's some pretty big chunks that could be taken out of that. Um, I'll just have to say, you know, I think people, especially, I'm, I'm just turned 40, I'm 40, and people my age and, and friends of mine, when we go out to a restaurant or a bar, we really drink a bunch of different beers. So we go to a place that has 25 beers on tap, and we're like, all right, we're going to start with that one from Denmark, and then oh, I'd like this one from Vermont. I've had that, and then we'll have a, you know, another one from uh, Pennsylvania, whatever. 
And that's how we drink. That's how we go out and enjoy ourselves is the yeah. variety. And to me, I, that's what I see. That's what I see people that I hang out with do. So to me, I don't know so much. Well, I know when I'm at store shelves, I do the same thing. I do not just buy, you know, beer X like my grandfather did. It's just not the way it is anymore. And there's still people like that, and that's why there's a huge market. But I, I'm pretty sure the craft. I'm pretty sure we've got some decades to go here before there's a burst of any kind of bubble. Mm-hmm. I'm no economic economic expert by any means, okay. <laughs> but we haven't had any problems, and um, it it seems like people want more and more craft beers. So. When you look at the the numbers nationally, the category uh, microbrewery, those under fifteen thousand barrels per year, uh, I think last year the average growth was thirty percent. So that certainly certainly suggests that um, there's a lot of healthy growth going on out there. And and if there if there's any you know slowdown in the industry, I guess people need to anticipate that and and not overcapitalize uh, expecting 30% or 20% growth per year, but um, um, certainly a sustainable 5% per year um, is still healthy growth. Uh, Jamie, what are you seeing in Pennsylvania? Uh, Yeah. um, I think, uh, you know, for the, you know, slightly more educated consumer, I think, yeah, certainly uh, getting out there, you know, wanting more craft beer, um, trying new things that come along. You know, if I see something on a tap I don't recognize, you know, chances are I'm probably going to opt for it because I haven't had it before. Um, my only concern with it uh, is, you know, with with the uh, purchases going on at such a, you know, here and there and, uh, you know, pretty regularly, I, I feel as though the, you know, the average person, and I, and I don't mean that as a, in, a, in a bad way because, uh, you know, certainly I, I don't know every single brewery that's been bought out or anything, but I think for the, uh, for the average person, you know, there's a lot of times they go out there and they think that they are supporting a craft brewery and they think they are supporting, you know, a local or, you know, a a smaller brewery, I should say, um, without even knowing it though, you know, they could be, you know, purchasing products that have been purchased that, that have already been bought out. And and for me, I see that as a growing, uh, trend and and I think it's even so much more important for you to gain a local you know stronghold on the market and and to have a tap room slash brew pub to get your product into people's hands because uh the distribution space I believe is going to get tougher and tougher to to get because uh you've got these big players now that can sort of dictate um you know what happens and and you and you see it already you see it where certain people, you know, don't get access to, you know, special seasonals if they don't carry X amount of product, or you see situations, um, you know, where uh, you walk into a place and and you say, what do you have craft-wise? And the only options there are, you know, Goose Island and, uh, you know, I I can't think of another one offhand right now, but, uh, you know, you get the idea. But, I mean, when you look at the average bar, they probably have, you know, eight to ten – you know, taps on. Um, and I'm not talking about craft bar, but just a, your average local watering hole. And, you know, when Budweiser is controlling or or selling a lot of what they have, you know, you start running through down the taps, and in PA, you've got Bud, you got Bud Light, you got Coors, you got, uh, you know, maybe Guinness, uh, Stella, you know, one of the wheat beers, whether it be Blue Moon or, uh, you know, whatever. And, and then you see Goose Island, and, and when these larger houses have the ability to sort of come in and say, Hey, how about I knock five dollars off your bud kegs that you're going to get? But you know, I really need that Goose Island tap. Um, you know, stuff like that. It, it's a little concerning. So I think um, being more localized and, and and focusing on that is going to be really important. I don't think that smaller places are going to be able to keep up. They just don't have the funds or the resources to uh, you know do these sort of national uh, distribution. Uh, you know nationally distribute uh you know it's just a little little tougher i think um now i hope i'm wrong (laughs) i truly do uh but uh you know i I definitely think it's a it's it's a concern uh two weeks ago we had uh bill cherry from switchback uh brewing on um and he talked at some length about their sort of methodical 
careful approach to expansion. Um, and they're now, you know, in some neighboring states, um, but they've gone about it very, very carefully. Um, and it's all about, you know, building their, their brand, creating some demand in the market um, and being able to service it uh, well um, and not, not just grow for the sake, sake of growing. Um, so what, what I, what I'm seeing either, even today in your uh, descriptions of how you've gone about um, building your brand, servicing your local markets, um, and uh, in the case of uh, successful 13 years or so of switchback, um, is a very careful planning approach, and uh, it really pays off in the, in the long term. Well, um, unfortunately, we're out of time, and we have to bring today's show to a close. Uh, I'd like to really thank uh, uh, Dan Kalowitz of Simple Roots Brewing Company here in Burlington and uh, Jamie Robinson from Boxcar Brewing uh, Company in Pennsylvania uh, for interesting discussion uh, on nanobreweries and their specific uh, lens on today's industry. Um, if you've ever dreamed about opening your own brewery, or looking for a career change into craft beer, uh, the University of Vermont's Business of Craft Beer certi Certificate offers uh, the industry-specific knowledge to make that possible. So until our next show, uh, enjoy the fall weather wherever you might be, and don't forget to visit your local breweries. Thanks a lot, guys. Cheers. Yeah, thanks Thank for having you. us. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.